0: to you in verse 4 and then I'll let you sit down and we'll look at the chapter as a whole. Everybody doing okay tonight? Only because of God, right? Amen, amen. Alright, Ezra 9 and verse 4. Then were assembled unto me every one that trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the transgression of those that had been carried away And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. Amen. Lord, we come before you tonight. We ask your blessing, Lord, to be upon the reading of your holy word. God, inspire me to preach tonight to this people, in this generation, in this hour, Lord. We need to hear, God, this word tonight from Ezra. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for speaking to us. Inspire us, Lord, to preach it and to hear it it is already anointed because it belongs to You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated in the name of the Lord. All right, verse 1, Now when these things were done, the princes came to me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the land. doing it according to their abominations, even of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yea, the band of the princes and rulers hath been chief in this trespass. And when I heard this thing, I rent my garments and my mantle and plucked off the hair of my head and of my beard and sat down astonished. Amen. So what is happening here is that Ezra has made his way back with a company of people less than 5,000. As we saw in the 8th chapter, they've made their way back to the land after about 60 years or so. Uh, In between the 6th and the 7th chapter, uh, Haggai, Zechariah, Zerubbabel, and Joshua are no longer around. And when Ezra arrives in the city of Jerusalem, he finds that the condition of the people of God is less than expected. Amen. Now, the people of God have been back in the land for a while, and the temple has been built. But their condition is not very good. They have backslidden in a way, and they are in apostasy in a way. Uh, So when he gets there in Jerusalem, he sees the condition of the people. And uh, what the problem was is that the people, including the leadership, began to intermarry with the people of the other lands, the Canaanites, Hittites, Parasites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites, so they begin to intermarry. Now this is not a racial thing, this is a spiritual problem, and I can prove that to you by the word of the Lord because in Numbers chapter 12 and verse 1, Moses the lawgiver married an Ethiopian woman, okay, So it wasn't a racial thing. And then we see in the Bible, uh, in the book of Ruth, that she's a Moabite and she was married to a Jew. So it's not a racial thing, it's a spiritual thing. In fact, if you look in Deuteronomy 7, it is Moses the lawgiver who addresses this in the law. So go over there to Deuteronomy 7. And the Bible says, Here through Moses. When the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land whither thou goest to possess it and hath cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites, the Girgashites, Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than thou. And when the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them, neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. So Moses is the one who wrote in the law that the people of God were not to intermarry with the unbeliever. Amen. It has nothing to do with race. It has to do with the people of God intermarrying with the unbeliever. Or the Holy Seed of God marrying the apostate seed or the unbeliever. Now all the way back to Genesis we see these two lines. We see the Holy Seed of God and we see the unholy seed or the apostates. And these two lines, these two seeds, the seed of the serpent and the seed of God, all the way from Genesis, all the way through the Bible, these two seeds run parallel in the Bible. And these two seeds, the holy seed of God and the unholy seed of Satan, are to never intermingle. They are to never be married together. Never. In fact, it is a lethal sin for a believer to marry an unbeliever. It is lethal. It is deadly. It is the mark, the mark of breaking a covenant with God. It's the highest level, uh, uh, highest mark, highest indication that a person has departed from God when they marry an unbeliever. It is absolutely forbidden in the Scripture for the Holy seed of God to marry the unholy seed of Satan. And this is what is happening in the passage. So that when Ezra gets back to the land, he sees the condition. And it's not just the people, but it's the leadership as well. So that this apostasy started with the headship. It started with the leaders and it trickled down into the congregation. In fact, the leaders were the ones that were uh, most given to this. If you can imagine that. Amen. It would be like a pastor of an apostolic church going out and finding an unbeliever in the world and marrying her. Or some leader in the church. Amen. Some elder or some deacon in the church going out as a believer and marrying an unbeliever and bringing, bringing that situation into the house of God. It is absolutely lethal. And it is a mark of breaking the covenant of God Almighty. Do you understand that? And so that's what is going on. When Ezra gets back, he sees the people. Now listen carefully. They've been back in the land for a while. The temple has been built. But the people have backslidden. And so when he gets there in the land, and he sees the condition in this Holy Seat of God, intermingling or intermarrying with the unholy seed of Satan, when he sees this, you can understand his response because of the level of, this, of the sin. It would be called in the Bible the exceeding sinfulness of sin. It is a high-level sin for a believer to marry an unbeliever. It, I will say it again. It is lethal and it is the mark of breaking covenant with God. Okay, And it is absolutely forbidden. It's forbidden in the Old Testament and it's forbidden in the New Testament. Second Corinthians chapter 6 talks about that you're not to be unequally yoked together with the unbeliever. That means you are not to marry an unbeliever. Now obviously, before you marry an unbeliever, you will enter into relationship with them. So before you get on that slippery slope, you better check yourself. You understand what I'm saying? Because you have to know somebody, you have to be in a relationship with them before you finally marry them. And I want to tell you something, if you start having a relationship with somebody that is not a believer, you're going to get on a slippery slope And it's very hard to get your footing once you get on that slippery slope. It's hard to catch yourself when you start going down. So don't wait till you're standing at an altar to repent. Don't even open the door to it. Because if you open the door to it, you're going to get on that slope and your foot, you're going to have a hard time catching yourself. So it's a very serious, it's a very deadly, it's a very lethal thing for you or anybody in the church of the living God to intermarry with the unbeliever. It is absolutely forbidden in the Scripture. So again, it is not anything about race. Because as we said, Numbers 12.1, the lawgiver who said don't marry the the pagan or the unbeliever is married to an Ethiopian woman. Numbers 12.1, right? So we have examples of people in different races marrying, and God didn't condemn that. But He condemns the holy seed marrying the apostate. The holy seed marrying the unholy seed. Are you hearing your pastor tonight? Amen. Praise the Lord. And we are not to give our children to the ungodly in marriage. You understand that? They may go off and do it, But you can't give your consent and you can't give your approval upon it. You absolutely cannot do that. Say praise the Lord. So because of this exceeding sinfulness of sin, this breaking of the covenant of God Almighty on on this level, when Ezra sees it, some people would say Ezra went over the top. That means that he overreacted. But he did not go over the top. He did not overreact because it was exceeding sinful what they were doing. And so we see the Scripture tells us in verse 3 that when Ezra hears of this... Now remember, we have priests that are doing this. We have the princes and the rulers. They've been the chief in the trespass. So we've got high-level leadership involved with this. And uh, when Ezra hears of it as he returns sees the condition he said when I heard this thing I rent my garment and mantle plucked off the hair of my head and of my beard and sat down astonished. now think about what he did he tore his clothes he tore his mantle he tore the hair out of his face and he tore the hair out of his head now, we don't do that today, do we? Sin is not responded that way by leadership today. You know what we do? We organize groups. Amen. Trying to try and go and recover. You understand what I'm trying to say? We get committees together and try to go out there and recover the apostate. You understand that? We do everything but what Ezra did. We respond in every way, but the way that Ezra responded. I mean, you got somebody that comes up there and he starts ripping the hair off of his face and pulling the hair out of his head and tearing his clothes. It wasn't over the top. It wasn't an overreaction. In fact, because this man did what he did and tearing his clothes, his mantle, his hair out of his head and out of his face, because of what he did, there were people that begin to tremble at the Word of God and begin to repent of that sin. If we would do it Ezra's way. See, what I'm trying to show you today is Ezra didn't do it the modern way. We have a modern way. We have a modern approach to things, you know. We, we want to compromise with stuff. But if we would respond like Ezra who did not respond the modern way, we would have revival. If we would refuse, first and foremost, to sin, to break covenant with God in this way, do you understand what the Word of God is showing you here? We'd have revival. But if we were in this type of sin, this high-level sin, if we responded like Ezra responded with that type of passion and that type of zeal for God, we would have revival. And it begins with the leadership. It begins with your pastor. Amen. And so the response of Ezra concerning the exceeding sinfulness of the people in this time caused many people to assemble and tremble at the Word of God. Verse 4, say amen. Would you think that would be over the top? Let's say if the church moved into apostasy, like it is right here, and the leadership of the church started tearing their clothes, pulling the hair out of their head. Well, they don't have a beard. Leaders in the church don't have a beard. But if we started doing that, how would y'all respond? In this modern age. We'd probably in this modern age might think, man, that guy's lost his mind. We need to we need to send him away. He's over the top. He's overreacting, you know. But Ezra didn't do it the modern way. He had a zeal for God. And in the end result, we're going to see, you know, probably next week, what the outcome is. Revival hits the land. Because of the way the man responded to sin. Amen. Verse 4 says, Then were assembled unto me everyone that trembled at the words of God. Now I want you to notice something here. Even though Ezra goes to this level of pulling his hair out and his beard and tearing his clothes, and he goes to that level. He doesn't go in a tirade. Do you understand what I'm saying? He doesn't lose control. He hasn't lost control. God doesn't lose control. He doesn't go into tirade, he goes into prayer. And he goes into intercession. Okay. And <clears throat> the people see this man of God. And the Bible says, meaning assemble. And they trembled at the words of God. Amen. So that what we see here is a people who tremble at the word of God. Do we tremble at the word of God? I said, do we tremble at the word of God? Are we a people who are at that level spiritually that we tremble at the Word of God? You see, we can mark our Bibles up. We can can have notes from Genesis to Revelation where we've marked them up and written on them and written notes out by the side. and You know what I'm talking about. But just because we have a marked up Bible doesn't mean that we're doing anything with it. You can have a knowledge of the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation, and if you're not doing anything with it, then maybe your life is marked up. You can have your Bible marked up and fouled up and everything else, but really maybe it's the life that's marked up and fouled up. Because we have to be a people that when the Word of God goes forth that we tremble at His Word. We do something with the Word of God that we're hearing, that we just don't have a knowledge of it. But it affects our life. It does something to us when we hear it. It brings us to a place of repentance. And so the response of the people when they saw Ezra responding to the apostasy that he saw in that way caused them to tremble at the Word of God. To begin to do something with the word of the Lord in their life. Do we tremble at the word of God? When we study, we should study on our knees. How many times we study the word of God, we just read it like it's just another book. I'm talking about we, I'm talking about me too. But if we study just like another book, like we're reading a novel or something. Do we reverence God's Word? Do we tremble at His Word? Do we respect His Word at this level? That when we read and we study, we fall to our knees and we study the Word of God on our knees. Not just to gain knowledge, not just to preach another message or another sermon, but the Word of God means something to us. We tremble when we hear it. We fall upon our knees. I know oftentimes when I'm preaching, you will see that i will correct situations and people you know maybe talking or distracted by things and i'll correct those situations you maybe some of you have a problem with that but when it comes to the holy word of god that is being preached it's not about i appreciate you respecting me but more importantly respecting the word of god that, that when you hear the word of God preached this is God's word it's holy and and I got to be careful let myself get distracted and, and be talking all the time amen when the word of God is being preached and so I will correct you because you need to have a reverence and a respect for the word of God you need to have an awe of it an awe of God he's as the Bible said, He's terrible. That means God is awe-inspiring. When I hear His Word, amen, it, I, say, I love the Word of God. And you should love the Word of God, that you would not allow yourself to be distracted. I will tell you a long time ago that when I was in the church, Christine and I were engaged to be married. And we didn't even sit by each other in the church so that when the pastor announced to the congregation that Christina and I were engaged, their mouth fell open. They didn't even know that we were friends. They were shocked because they never saw us sitting in the church. Yakety yak yak yak. They never saw us holding hands. They never saw us passing notes because when we went to the house of God, I went to the house of God and she went to the house of God. We went there to meet with God and to hear the word of God and to be focused on what was preached. And we refused to let anything distract us. So even though we were engaged to be married, we didn't even sit together. It was kind of different. I know it was probably different for her, but it was really different for me. After we got married and came back from our honeymoon and we were sitting together in church. I remember coming and sitting together in church that first night. It, it, it was really different, you know, because we had never done that before. You know, And you, you kind of feel a little bit funny. You think everybody's looking at you. You just, you just get this feeling. I mean, it wasn't true, but you just get this feeling. Everybody's looking at me right now. And I'm sitting by my wife here, you know. But that's just the way we were. And, and it wasn't the pastor that told us to do that it's just that we had a reference for God and a reference for his word and we didn't want anything anything to distract us from hearing that word or experiencing God amen say praise the Lord Lord. do you tremble at his word like that I didn't have mom and dad sitting in the church with me mom and dad wasn't sitting beside me in the church I was by myself, as far as my natural family was concerned, by myself, sitting in the house of God. Amen. She had a brother, but her mom and dad wasn't sitting in the church beside her. But as young people, we just had just a love for God and a love for His Word. Praise the Lord. And I pray my testimony tonight encourages some of you to come in here and to get focused on the Word of God and to get focused on the things of God and have personal revival and build your life on the Word of God. Build your life on the things of God. Build your life living for the Lord. I often think about, you know, things right now, and I think about the decisions that that some that I know are making, and I think about it like this. I said it's so different from, from, from myself. It's so different from my wife. The decisions that they're making. We were willing to trust God and wait on God and love God and love His Word and and wait on God's timing to bring the right person in our life so we wouldn't intermingle with somebody or intermarry somebody in the world. And We just trusted God and put relationships on altars and we went through all that process of putting relationships on altars to make sure that we weren't out of the will of God. Even though they were in the church, we still put them on the altar much less trying to find a relationship outside of the church. And I think about someone I know and they're going a different direction and it just doesn't, it's not the same. You have to be patient. You have to learn to wait on God. You have to learn to put relationships even that are in the church on the altar to make sure it's the will of God. And so when Ezra went to the land, he saw these people marrying and intermarrying with the heathen. People that offered their children to. As sacrifices to Moloch. Human sacrifices. People that were involved in witchcraft. Do you understand? Just just gross idolaters. When Ezra saw the people of God marrying these people, no wonder he responded by tearing his clothes, his beard, his his hair out of his head. No wonder he got that way. He saw the condition of the people. Where is the fear, the reverence of God? Where is the fear, the reverence of a holy God? And, and, and just the thought of getting out of His will. Just the thought of doing that causes you to fear. Where is it? We need to respond like Ezra responded in this modern culture. It will respond the way He responded and the way the people assembled around Him and trembled at the Word of God. If we will respond that way, we will have revival without question. But it starts with the leadership. It starts with me. It trickles down from me to other leaders and then from there into the congregation. Amen. They trembled at the words of God because of the transgression of those that had been carried away. And I said astonished, astonished, astonished until the evening sacrifice. Astonished is the word here. Until the evening sacrifice. He's weeping, he's crying. The Bible tells us later on. Weeping and crying with his clothes torn, his hair pulled out, his face and his head is crying and weeping and interceding over the condition of the church. Until the evening sacrifice, he's astonished, which brings us to Calvary, the sacrifice of Jesus. In verse 5 through 15, he begins to pray. He begins to intercede. He throws his hands up to heaven, with tears running down his face. As I said, he doesn't go into a tirade. He doesn't blame the heathen. He blames the people of God. He starts interceding, he starts praying. The Bible says "And at the evening sacrifice I rose up from my heaviness. Say praise the Lord. Heaviness. Well first of all, what would cause these people to do what they did? God's brought them out of captivity? They're in the land, the temple's built. And to go away from God, to be unfaithful to God this way, to break His covenant, well, well, what was what was it that caused them or uh, what brought them to this place where they would do something like that? Well, if you study the prophets like Haggai and all the way up beyond Ezra to Nehemiah, you will see that the people of God were constantly afflicted. And as they were afflicted, they went into discouragement. No excuse. But discouragement will cause you to let down. It'll cause us to let down. And so, because the people of God aff- constantly afflicted, moved into a position of discouragement, they started letting down the guard. And that's what will happen oftentimes with us, including your pastor. In times of discouragement, when you fought the battle, a long and hard battle, and you get discouraged, and pretty soon you just get tired, and you start letting down your guard. Are you hearing your pastor tonight? It's so easy in a time of discouragement to just start saying, okay, I'm going to stop fighting. So I'm going to let down the guards. And these people have sinned against God greatly and partially as we read the prophets Haggai and on through Nehemiah it's partially because of their affliction even the days of Ezra trying to build the temple of God and all the opposition that was coming against them they were discouraged at times Haggai got them through it Zechariah got them through it so that they built the temple amen got them through those times of discouragement But as history goes along all the way even beyond Ezra's day, when Nehemiah comes to build the walls, there's affliction, there's attack from the enemy that causes the people of God to be discouraged. And when they get discouraged, they let down. That's just the way it is. So Ezra begins to pray over the situation. And the Bible says, At the evening sacrifice I rose up from my heaviness, And having rent my garment and my mantle, I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands unto the Lord my God. Spread out my hands. That means He lifted His hands like this to God. Why do people lift their hands like this to God? What is that a symbol of? What's that a picture of? Surrender. We've heard that surrender, yes. But it's more than just surrendering. It means, Lord, I'm not concealing anything. Lord, when I, when I come and approach you tonight, there's nothing hidden. I'm coming with just like this before you. I'm not trying to hide anything. I'm not trying to cover up anything. I'm not trying to conceal anything. I'm standing in your presence today, Lord. And I'm giving you all. I'm giving you Everything. And this is Ezra. This is his position. This is his condition. He's crying. He's weeping. He's heavy. He's discouraged. He's tore his clothes, tore his hair, tore his beard. He gets up and he starts praying. He lifts his hands to heaven. He says, God, I'm not hiding anything. I'm not going to conceal anything. I'm coming. I'm going to give you everything I got. Amen. Praise the Lord. Praise Amen. The Lord. Amen. Praise the Lord. Would you would you Back there in the back, do your pastor a favor. Would y'all come on up in the front? I'm going to invite you. I'm going to invite you to come in a little bit closer instead of being back there on that back pew. Thank you. No hiding anything. No concealing anything. No covering up anything. Just saying, God, I'm coming with my hands lifted up. I'm coming here tonight, Lord, and I'm going to give you all that I got. And as he prays, notice how he prays. He said, Oh my God, I am ashamed. I'm ashamed and blush to lift up my face to thee, my God. For our iniquities are increased over our heads and our trespasses grown up unto the heavens. Notice what he does. He doesn't point a finger at the unbeliever. He he doesn't blame the Canaanite, Hittite, Perizzite, Jebusite, Ammonite, Moabite, Egyptian, or the Amorite in verse 1. He doesn't blame the unbeliever for what has happened. Because the unbeliever doesn't know the truth. So, the blame is on the people of God who know the truth. You get somebody in the church and they move into this state, this condition, they moved away from the Lord, and they start getting a relationship with somebody in the world. It's not the person in the world's fault, problem. It's the person that was in the church that knew the truth's problem. The person in the world doesn't have a clue. They, they don't know the truth. They don't know. The person that's at wrong, at fault for entering into relationship with the unbeliever is the believer because they know the truth. So the problem isn't with the, with the unbeliever. The problem is with the believer. So you'll notice Ezra doesn't point or blame the unbeliever he blames the people of God for doing this. And notice how he prays it. His intercessory prayer. I'm ashamed and blush to lift up my face to my to thee, my God, for our for our iniquities are increased over our heads. Our trespasses are grown up unto the heavens. Since the days of our fathers have we been in great trespass unto this day, and for our iniquities have we our kings, our priests, been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, and to spoil, and to confusion of face as it is this day. Notice how he prays. He blames the people of God. But he doesn't say, they didn't. He says, it's our sin. It's our trespass. We have done this. See, we can stand up. I can stand up tonight and I can preach to you about the sad state of the church. I can stand up and preach to you about apostasy that's in the church. But if I'm in the church, then we are in the apostasy. If I'm in the church and the church is in a sad condition, that means I'm in a sad condition. See, oftentimes we want to divorce ourselves from the church. And we want to point a finger at the church and say, yeah, you're in sin and they are in apostasy. And Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I want to tell you something. If this church tonight is in apostasy, if this church tonight is in a sad state, then so am I. Because I'm a part of you. And I can't divorce myself from you. So tonight if you're in revival, tonight if you love God, tonight if you are the people that, that you need to be in God, then I'm with you in that. I'm with you in the victories. I'm with you in the good condition. I'm with you in the revival. But if you're not in a good state, if you're apostate, then so am I because I am a part of the church and I cannot divorce myself from the church's condition. I can get up and I can preach and I can tell, you know, and divorce myself and distance myself and talk about how all of you are in apostasy and sad state and sad condition. But that's not what this man did. This man stood up and said, We have sinned. We have transgressed. It's our problem. We have done that. It's me, oh God. It's me, oh God. Standing in the need of prayer. It's me, oh God. It's me, oh God. Standing in the need of prayer. If the church is lukewarm. If the church is apostate. If the church is in a bad condition. It is because I'm a part of it. And I could have done something different to change it on a personal level. So I can't divorce myself from you. I can't divorce myself from your condition. I cannot do that because I'm a part of you. And whatever condition we're in, that's the condition I'm in. Especially as your pastor. See, I'm in touch with that reality. That if you're not doing too good as a church, I'm not doing too good as a pastor. Because it starts with me. If our church has a problem, I have a problem. If our church is not in revival, I'm not in revival. You see what I'm saying? And this is Ezra. This is the way he was. He's a great man of God. But when he starts praying, yes, he recognized the sin that was in the people. And he wasn't guilty of that particular sin. But he said, we have done this. I'm part of it. A great man of God like Ezra said, I'm a part of it. Until each one of us tonight, church, individually in this house, take responsibility for the condition of the church and we stop divorcing ourselves and distancing ourselves from the condition of this church faking that we are better than it then that's when we will have revival because we're not going to point the finger of blame for our sin It's me, O God. It's me, O God. Standing in the need of prayer. It's me, O God. It's me, O God. Standing in the need of prayer. I'm not going to point a finger at my brother and sister and tell them, well, you know, if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't sin. You're about as crazy as you can get. If I sin or you sin, it's not because somebody... Cause you to do it. You get it. Do you understand what your pastor's saying tonight? We have to stop divorcing ourselves from the condition of the church. Like we're better than that. I tell you, as your pastor, I am not better. I am not better than the present condition of this church. I am not better. I'm not higher than it. I am a part of it. If we are where we need to be as a people of God, I'm with you. If we're in revival, I'm with you. Praise the Lord. And I'm not saying that we're wrong. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying the truth of the matter is if we're not where we need to be, nor am I. Nor am I. See the problem with Israel. See, Ezekiel ran across some people like this that had the spirit in his age. And this offended God. This attitude and this spirit of self-righteousness and pointing the finger and blaming other people for your sin that offended God Almighty. There was a proverb they were, were, were speaking in Ezekiel's day in the 18th chapter that offended God. And the proverb was this the fathers have eaten sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. And when they, when they said that proverb, they offended God because they were blaming, the children were blaming, or that generation was blaming somebody else for what they were going through. That generation was blaming somebody else for their sin. They said, our fathers are the one that ate the grapes. They're the ones that sinned against God. But our generation is experiencing the judgment of God. In the 18th chapter, an offended God says, I'm going to tell you something. Let me just read it to you. Let's go to Ezekiel so you'll see it. Shiriyabahakushita. Do we have any clue as 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 we as to how we offend the holy God? I tell you, we are not in touch with it. Ezekiel 18, look. You want to touch something, you want to put your hand on it. You put your hand on yourself. And you say it's me, oh God. I put my hand on my own head. 18.1, the word of the Lord came unto me again saying, What mean ye that you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge? As I live, saith the Lord God, you shall not have occasion anymore to use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine as the soul of the Father so also the soul of the Son is mine, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. God said, stop blaming other people for your sin. Because He said, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Are you here tonight? The prophets talked about, gave a picture. See, the unholy, the unholy, can make the holy unclean. Let me say it again. The unholy can make the holy unclean if you intermingle with it. But it's your sin. But the unholy, you understand, or the holy, the holy cannot make the unholy clean. You can't pass it on. You can pass defilement on. But you can't pass holiness on, the people. But the problem is, is the condition of the people. They have sinned against God, but they're blaming everybody else for their sin or their condition. Are you hearing what your pastor's saying? And it offended God. I'm telling you, we cannot divorce ourselves from the condition of the church. We can't point the finger of blame. Hallelujah. If the church is in the condition, it's me. See, that's the problem we have. We come to church. Some of us come to church and we're so full of pride. We think everybody else has got the problem but ourselves. We can't see it. We can't see the trees for the forest. We can't. We want to blame everybody else. For our own sin. That was not Ezra. Hallelujah. So if there's something to celebrate, we all get to celebrate together. If there's victory, we all get to celebrate victory together. If there's rejoicing, we need to rejoice. If there's a need for sorrow, everybody's going to sorrow, right? We're all in one big body. How did you come to church today? How did you come to church tonight? How did I come to church tonight? We're living in a generation that is just like Ezra's day and just like Ezekiel's day. And Ezra said, we have sinned against God. Now listen to me church tonight. Whatever the condition of the church is, God is the one that's going to judge this church. Okay. He's the one that's standing in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks tonight with an eyes as a flame of fire. And he knows. He tries the spirits. He knows what's in your spirit. He knows what's in your heart. He knows what's in your mind. He knows what's in your thinking. And he's going to judge this church. My position tonight is this. It's me, oh God. It's me, oh God, standing in the need of prayer. And if you don't have that state of mind... You are a hypocrite and you offend a God who is holy and righteous. <laughs> I say, if you want to touch something, touch your own head. If you want to touch something, touch your own family. I do. See if I get this attitude that I'm better than you are, I'm your pastor. I'm better than they are. Who won't even come to church? If you get this if you get the truth though of the whole matter, like Ezra had this revelation, man, I say man, what we are is who I am. It's who I am. You understand? Somebody said, you know, not long ago, forgive me for this carnal illustration, but a certain football team, you know, they had a real bad game. And they said, that wasn't us. Sorry to tell you, it was. Because you repeated it again. It is you. That's not me. Yes, it is. Because you repeated it again. It is us. So, so go. As the church goes, so go all of us, including your pastor. No one of the man lifts his hands to heaven like that. Said, "I'm not covering up here, hiding anything, concealing anything." He says, "We have the problem." You see that, and he's not blaming the world. He's not blaming the unbeliever. They don't know any different. He's blaming those that have light and those that have the truth. And he puts himself in the whole thing. This is why he is such a great man of God. This is why, like when men like Daniel, when they prayed, they prayed right before coming out of captivity, Daniel prayed, We have sinned against thee, O God. To us belong confusion of face. He put himself in that. He's a great prophet of God. I don't read anything where Daniel ever sinned against God in anything. But he said, we have sinned against thee, O God. To us belong confusion of face. What he's saying is, God, you are righteous. God, you are holy. You're right. And I'm wrong. Hallelujah! And you better believe this preacher's going to preach right at you. I'm not going to preach before you or in front of you. I'm going to preach right to you. We can only move as fast as the slowest saint. As a church. That's right. You get a big old ship, and you try to turn a big old ship... It's very slow. It takes a long time to turn a big old ship. a lot of time. We're not trying to turn one individual. The whole church living God has to be turned. and it takes time to turn. It takes years it's like a big old boat, It takes years to turn that thing around. Say Amen? Because what we fail to understand is oftentimes is that we go through times and seasons of great revival. Restoration, restored back to the land. Coming out of captivity. The house of God is built. Things are in place. The order of service is set. The church is doing good. But look how quick. Look how quick this people went down. That quick. It can happen to any of us tonight. It can happen to me very quickly because there is something we need to understand is, there is a desire in you and a desire in me to live holy with before the Lord. Correct? How many have that desire to live holy? But how many recognize that you have a sin nature that intrudes with that? We have a sin nature that intrudes with that desire to live holy. But that doesn't mean it's an impossible battle to win. Read Romans chapter 7 when you get time. Paul went through that process of this struggle between the desire to live holy and the struggle of that sin nature that was in him. And he just, he just, I thank God through Jesus Christ. The only way, he said, the only way I can live holy and be victorious over this sin nature is through Jesus Christ. So it's not a hopeless battle. We can win this battle. But my point to you, brothers and sisters, is that, that we must recognize that there is a struggle inside of us. There's a struggle between the desire to live holy and a, an evil nature that's in us. And if we're not careful, we can go down quickly. And we get on that slippery slope. How many of you know what I'm talking about? You get on that slippery slope... Man, as soon as you get on it, then you're trying to get your feet back, right? What do you do? You just keep slipping. Until pretty soon, you just slipped all the way out. Because sin adds to sin. You open the door for one sin, here comes another one. You open the door for one sin, here comes another I know what I'm talking about. I preach we open the door. We step on the slippery slope. I want, don't get on the slope. That's the whole point. Because when you get on the slope, you're not going to be able to get your footing back. But there is a struggle between that desire to live holy and that sin nature that interferes with that. You know what I'm talking about? And this is what the people of God went through. They went through a time of revival. But now they're backslid. Desire to live holy on the one hand, but yielding to the sin nature on the other. Does anybody in the church tonight recognize the condition of the body? Of the church, this church, nothing went across town. This church. So he prays. He said, "I'm ashamed. How blessed to lift up my face to Thee, my God." For our iniquities are increased over our head. Our trespass has grown up unto the heavens. Since the days of our fathers have we been in a great trespass unto this day. And for our iniquities have we, our kings and our priests, been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands to the sword, to captivity, to spoil, and to confusion of face as it is this day. And he says, what we're doing right now is going to bring the same result. You want to know why this man was so stirred to the point he'd tear his clothes, his beard, his hair out of his head? Because he knew that the, what they were doing at that time would bring the same results of the past, which was the judgment of God Almighty. This is what, this is why God judged him to begin with. And allow them to become captive. And Ezra recognizes that this same condition that they're in now. Can produce the judgment of God. Anytime. And so that's why he prays like he prays. The holy city have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yea, the hand of the princes and the rulers have been chief from the trespass. Verse 2. It's trickled down from the leadership into the body of Christ. So it is so easy. It is so easy for a church to be affected by leaders. That's why I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. That if there's anything in my family, anything in my life, anything that's going on that hinders you, affects you, I will step down in a minute. Because I'm not one that thinks that I'm above it. I wrestle with these things. What is the condition? All I can do is throw my hands up to heaven before God. At least I'm going to do that. And say, Lord, I'm not going to hide anything. And I'm not going to act. And I'm not going to play like it's somebody else. And I'm not going to put the blame you know, on anybody else. Because I recognize that if there is judgment that is about to fall on us, it is because we deserve it. In fact, we deserve worse. And this was where Ezra was. He he knew that what they were doing could bring the same result as the past, and that's the judgment of God. He knows. But note, I'm telling you, he's not in a tirade. He's praying with his hands lifted to heaven. And and, and notice what he says. Okay, he says. This has gone on for so long. It's gone on all the way back to the days of our fathers. Look at our history. Look at the history. See, Ezra knew history. It's important for you and I, and I've told you this before in preaching Ezra, it's important for you and I to know the history of this church. Not just the great revivals, not just the mighty moves of God, but the times of lapse. That we know the history of this church. Ezra was in touch with the history. He said, I can look and I can tell you we've had this problem going way back. This wasn't some new thing that came up. This has been going on in the church way back. God's tried to turn it around. Now watch how he prays. He's going to acknowledge that the grace and the mercy of God hasn't given them what they deserved. He said, We've had grace for a little space. The reason why, church, that you and I are not destroyed tonight is because a little space of grace. so that even though I and you deserve much worse than we get it is because of the grace of God that we are not consumed and these people going back and doing what God judged them in the past for is worthy of God's judgment now but God Does not give them what they deserve. In His grace and His mercy, He forbears with you and I. He was long suffering with this people, doing the same thing they, they did before, and God judged them. Do you understand that? God could have come in and judged them just instantly right there, but He was long suffering. He forbear with them in this condition. He's going to call them to repent. Because if they don't, they won't even be able to stand in His presence. But the reason why He didn't judge them for their backslidden apostate condition after His restoring them is because of His grace. Amen? So whenever we look at it properly, say we... We recognize that we deserve much worse than we're getting. We really do. And how long, how often, and how long has God been forbearing with me? How good God is. How good He is. He he could have... Donked on me. He could have stepped all over me. He could have walked all over me. He could have judged me, and I deserve it. And all I could say to God is, "I I deserve worse than I'm getting, Lord. I deserve greater judgment than I'm getting." But Lord, because of your grace and your forbearing, I'm not judged tonight. Do you understand this? That the people in the land, in apostasy, in a backslidden condition, deserved judgment. But God showed mercy. Do you hear what I'm saying to you tonight? When a people do what this people did holy city, intermarrying with an unholy city, a uh, holy seed, breaking covenant, lethal, lethal, lethal decision for God not to step down and kill them on the spot for being unfaithful and breaking the covenant mercy. how good God is. And though people go away from Him and are unfaithful to Him, He doesn't judge them instantly. He gives them space for grace. A little space of grace. That's why we have to be real careful about judging a situation in the present moment. Because God is long-suffering and He forbears with even this level of sin a little space of grace. Are you thankful tonight that the Lord was long-suffering with you and forbear that, that He didn't judge us when we deserved to be judged? Praise the Lord. I'm preaching to people tonight that I saw you do things that it, it's just the mercy and grace of God that you're sitting in the church tonight. Don't ever lose your love for Him. Don't ever lose your praise for Him. The mercy that was shown you. Showed you. mercy that was shown me. That allows me to be in this place tonight. That allows you to be in this place tonight. Hallelujah. That's the grace of God, the mercy of God. Hey, do you remember when you first got in the church and you lived for Him just a little while, and then you backslid? Do you remember how you came back and what condition you came back in, and how you were dressed when you walked through the doors of Jesus? and God showed mercy to you! When your pastor could have run you out of the church coming in there dressed like that, because you knew better, God showed mercy to you. He didn't give you what you deserve. And obviously, I can't stand up here and preach a message without my life experience being in it. I can't I can't divorce myself or distance myself from my life experience. But for the grace of God Almighty, every one of us would be in hell tonight. But for the grace of God Almighty, you wouldn't even be a family tonight. God and His sovereign grace and mercy Amen. in your life put you crazy people together Amen. so that you would have a family in the church of the living God. Amen. Hallelujah. You understand what your pastor is saying? Amen. That's the goodness of God. The grace of God. Yeah, it's a horrible, lethal, deadly sin they've committed. They've broken covenant with God Almighty in doing what they have done. But the second thing you need to see is the grace of God did not give them what they deserve. And so what you do is you recognize your history. You look at your... Sometimes not just as a church, but you've got to look at your own history. And yes, it's under the blood, but look at the history. Say, yeah, I was doing pretty good here. then slipped. I got on the slope and I couldn't get my footing. And there I go. Then the Lord picked me up pop me up out of the pit from which from which, out of the pit and he put me back on my feet again do you understand that look at your own history and it's alright to say yes Lord I, I missed it there and I sinned there God it was horrible but I'm still in the church tonight because of grace the mercy of God. He that's been forgiven much loves much. God doesn't want you to shoot yourself, condemn yourself. He wants you to say, thank you Lord because I deserve worse than what I'm getting. I deserve worse than what I'm getting. And sometimes you have to look at your history. If things are not going well, I do. I do. Things start coming apart on me, falling apart around me. I look at the situation and say, Lord. And I tell my wife, I said, I made a mistake somewhere. I missed it somewhere. I don't know where I missed it, but I missed it somewhere. And I said, I don't know how far back it goes. I don't know how far back it goes, but I have missed it somewhere. because there's some things that are happening in my life right now. I can't say I don't deserve. I say, I've missed it somewhere. I tell you that. As your pastor, you have to get honest with God. if things start falling apart in your life, you don't keep... You take... You examine... You look at your history. You say, God, where did I miss it? I appreciate it, sister, talking to my wife not long ago, said, I just feel like I've missed it somewhere and I don't know where I've missed it. That's good! That somebody looking back at the history, the decisions that have been made in life, that have brought them into a present situation, and they're saying, where did I miss it? That's good. You have to know your history. This man knows the history of the church. This man has just come out of captivity. He knows what it's like to be in captivity. And he doesn't want to go back to that captivity. And he knows that he deserves that. They, come on somebody as a church as a whole. Deserve it. But he doesn't want to go back to that captivity. How many want to go back to where God found you? You want to go back to your bondage? Your crazy life? Do you want to go back to captivity? We have a man here, Ezra, that knew what it was like to be in captivity. That's why he's praying like he's praying we have sinned. He said, I don't want to go back to that. I don't want to return back to that. Jesus, help us tonight. Help your pastor. Help you tonight to hear the Word of God to say, no, I'm not going back. I'm not going back. It wasn't better with us when we were in Egypt. It wasn't better with us when we were in the world. I don't want to go back to the captivities, the bondages. I don't want it. I don't want it. I deserve judgment. I don't want to go back. See, Ezra, this man's in touch with the reality of it. He was in it. He doesn't want to go back to it. You have to know your history. I don't want to go back to that. I remember the way our family was—just a mess, a mess. Not going back to that. I'm repenting. If you're a wife tonight, you got to repent of yourself. If you're a husband and not not doing what you're supposed to do, you got to repent of yourself. Because if you don't, it's all going to come apart, and you're going to be just like you were before God found you, and it's. You can't point a finger at Him and He can't point a finger at you. You've got to throw your hands up and say, God, we have sinned. I've missed it somewhere. I'm not what I should be. You have to be able to do that. You have to look at yourself in the mirror and say, you're the problem. But it's not a hopeless battle. With Jesus Christ, you can win. With Jesus Christ, I can win. I can win. I want to tell you something, my friend. You might try it. You might go out and return to what you were once in. But I want to tell you something. Think about what you're going to miss. You're going to miss feeling the presence of God like you feel Him tonight. You're going to miss hearing the Word of God Like you're hearing it tonight. The blessings of God in your life. You'll miss it. You'll miss it. And you're out there, you try everything to fill that hole, you'll never be able to fill it. Only God will satisfy you, and only God will satisfy me. Ezra doesn't want to go back. He thanks God for his grace. Deserve worse. And so in verse 8, now for a little space, Grace. Now for a little space, Grace. What a good God. Give you a little space, Grace. If it wasn't for God coming to you and I and strengthening us daily, helping us overcome, getting us out of discouragement and depression and heaviness and defeating the enemies that would afflict us. Where would we be tonight? I know where I would be. Little space of Grace. a little space grace that had been showed from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape. See, not everybody came, left Babylon, and went back to Jerusalem. Only a remnant, only a few. Out of the hundreds and thousands of Jews that should have returned, only a small little remnant of people. And now this remnant, the condition that it's in in the land, is not much better than the people back in Babylon. But it was God's grace that allowed for even a remnant to come out of captivity. His grace allowed a remnant. If I'm in the church tonight, it's because of the grace of God. If it weren't for the grace of God, there wouldn't even have been a remnant that returned. Had all stayed in Babylon. But as we read at the beginning of the story, God stirred up their spirits, stirred up their hearts. God did it. God didn't stir them. They wouldn't have never had a desire to leave. God stirred them and they left. Just a little space of grace that there'd be a remnant. That's who the prophets preached to. They preached to the remnant. They didn't preach to the whole general house, the whole church. They preached to a small group of people called the remnant. The grace of God. To leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a nail. Oh, wow. A little space grace to give us a remnant. And then he said, a nail. Literally, if you look in the margin of your Bible, it says a constant and sure abode. Nail. A constant and sure abode. He nailed us to this place. He gave us stability. A nail or a peg. Yathed in the Hebrew. Yathed nail can be a peg that's driven into the ground that secures the tent it's a picture of being secured nailed to the promises and covenant of God stability the wind's blowing against that tent because we have a nail gives us stability gives that tent stability it holds that tent in place also Yopheib was a nail that was driven in the wall, driven in the board of the tabernacle. And they would hang vessels, vessels of God of the tabernacle on that nail. It was driven, if you will, into a wall to hold things up. (laughs) Ezra says, we have a nail he's given us, he's the one that's given us stability. He's the one that we depend upon. He's the one that holds us up. That's right. That's right. Amen. That's right. In Isaiah 22, in 22 and on, Jesus is called the nail in a sure place. It's a prophecy about Jesus a nail in a sure place. This nail he's talking about is Jesus Christ. He's the one that gives us stability, Ezra said. He's the one that we hang everything upon, that holds everything up in our life. When I need to be lifted up, when I need to be held up, he's my nail. How is he? This nail in a sure place and... Isaiah 22 prophesies of him, and it has in Zechariah prophesied that he would be a nail. How is he? Because he was nailed. For you and I on the cross, he has nailed us to his throne. So that behind the veil, beyond the veil, there is an anchor that is sure and steadfast, we are connected to the nail, to the throne of God Almighty, the nail of the throne. Because He was nailed. We are nailed with Him in the throne. That's the picture. He's given us eternal life. Now I want you to see this. That this people that deserve judgment... Ezra doesn't say to them, You've all lost your soul. By this figure of a nail, he's saying, You're still saved. You're saved. Your security, your stability, you're being nailed eternally to the throne of God Almighty is because of Jesus' death on the cross and his grace in your life. He didn't tell them you're all lost. He let them know by the symbol that the one that would come and be nailed to the cross is the one that would save them from this condition of sin. And that because of Jesus Christ and His grace and His covenant, this people would be saved. I tell you, this is one of the greatest chapters in the Word of God. It's one of the greatest chapters in the book of Ezra. The good news tonight, church, is that when you and I deserve judgment, grace. Space for grace. And when we look at our lives and say, I don't even know if I'm saved anymore, and God says, He's in hell to you. You still belong to Him, you're not lost, you still belong to Him. I still belong to Him tonight. I don't feel it. I don't feel worthy of it. But I still belong to Him tonight. Because I look to Calvary. I look to the narrow, pierced hands of a Savior. And I ask for mercy. And I repent of my sin. And He gives me grace. Amen. How many times in your life you thought it was over for you? It's hopeless. You don't have a chance of making it to heaven. Not, not anybody? Okay, good. good. good, I'm glad. I'm glad maybe you have a revelation of the nail, And that's good. Because this people in the condition that they were in were still saved. Now that doesn't mean that if they don't repent that they're going to remain that way. Because Ezra will go on and say, we are not even able to stand in your presence this way. Okay? But at least at this point, they're still saved. God's given them space for grace. Isn't that good? Amen. Now, for a little space, grace <laughs> have been showed from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a nail. The offaid in the Hebrew that's Jesus Christ in his holy place that our God is. May lighten our eyes and give us a little reviving in in our bondage. God, you've been good to us. You've been gracious to us. You didn't give us what we deserve. Lord, continue to be like that. Continue. Continue to bless us. Continue to allow us to remain in the land. Continue, Lord, this path. Lighten our eyes. It's come alive again. Y'all, have you ever fasted? You know, you haven't eaten for a while. And all of a sudden, you eat a little food. It's like, all of a sudden, like, I mean, I don't know how to explain it, but like all of a sudden, life begins to come back into you. (laughs) I've been in those situations. Fasting, you know. You know, you start eating. Man, all of a sudden, like, wow, life, life. Comes back in your eyes. You know, you come back alive, literally. And that's what he's saying Lord, let, let that light come back up in us. Life come up in us. <clears throat> Give us a little revive in, in our bondage. Revival is not a word that's in the Bible, but reviving is. We use the term revival, but reviving is the Bible word. You can say revival, but you know what true revival is? It's not when the sinner comes in and gets converted. Right. Right. So, what do you have? We have a revival. People are getting saved. Reviving in the Bible is for the believer. Because reviving a revival is connected to death. And it's even used of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, that he was revived. So when you get a people that's revived, it's not the sinner coming into the church. It's, not. it's the church who are believers. They're coming back alive again. Lights coming up in their eyes. And they're moving from a place of, if you will, just about dead. They're just about dead. See, if you need reviving tonight, that means you're just about dead. He's just about to die. And here comes the emergency person. <laughs> boom, boom, and revive them. You see? They revived. So He talks about revival. He's not talking about the sinner coming. He's talking about you and me. You and I. Proper English. We're about that close to death. And then all of a sudden, power comes back in us. Vitality. Strength life life as from the dead all by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ by Calvary the one that was nailed to a tree reviving we're praying God send us revival we're thinking about souls being saved you start praying about revival it's about you coming up almost from the dead and getting power again. And when people see you, they know you've been revived because you've been come sitting in church. I mean, you just barely... Hallelujah. You, we we just barely made it in. You know. And then all of a sudden, that person that just barely made it in. Barely awake, barely alive. All of a sudden, church running! You go, whew. Man. That's a miracle. No, it's revived. Amen? So when some of you preachers start preaching revival, you better tell the church the truth. I'm going to preach on revival tonight. You better tell them the truth. You're preaching to them, not to the sinner. You're telling them they're about that close to death. And we need God to come in and revive us. Get us living again. For we, verse 9, were bondmen, yet our God hath not forsaken us in our bondage. Look at that. But hath extended mercy unto us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us reviving to set up the house of our God and to repair the desolations thereof and to give us a wall in Judah and in Jerusalem. And now, O oh our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken thy commandments. at gracious God. We have forsaken thy commandments. You start praying like this, you're praying. You start praying for revival you start praying lord we have forsaken thy commandments we are not what we should be we've sinned against you to us belongs confusion of face we have trespassed against thee O god we are in apostasy we're in a sad state we you start praying like that something will happen in you first <clears throat> They tremble at his word. I need this as much as anybody in the church tonight. You wanna you wanna point a finger at your pastor? Go right ahead. I don't care. Because I know. I know. You want to point a finger at my shortcomings and my failure? I have already confessed it. I don't need you to tell me. Do you hear what your pastor says? I don't need you to tell me. I've already confessed it. So you want to talk about your pastor failing or being a failure? go right ahead, I don't really mind, the two or three of you that do that. Hallelujah. <laughs> because I've already confessed it. I don't know how far back. They praise the Lord. See, we're really, Honestly, we're really not as strong as we think we are. We you know and, and things come in our life to show us we really not as yeah We yeah. we're not as great as we are think we are as strong as we think we really are. We Yeah right. You hear what I'm saying? <laughs> Praise the Lord yeah. I'm a fast runner Woo Hallelujah. Look at me run until you get with some competition, (laughs) and then you get humbled, humbled. But my runners are—I say my runners—because they're my runners. My runners don't have that attitude. They don't walk around haughty and prideful, and they think they—you know—they're Mr. God's gift or she's God's gift to the athletic world. They don't think like that. But there's some in the church that do. Until you really have some competition. Then you find out you're really not as great as you thought you were, as strong as you thought you were. Hallelujah to the Lamb. Sometimes we're going to go through things in our life. And God says, you know, you really think you're something. You're really not that big of a deal. You're really not that big of a deal. This is This hard. It is it hard? I'm talking about myself. Yeah, okay, fine. You can point fingers at everybody else, but when you go through it, where will you be? How, how, how will you handle it? When you are on a personal level, what would you do? I love every one of you. But what would you do in a similar situation? But for grace. Yeah. And now, our God, I love it. Ezra, what a great man. And now, our God. What shall we say after this? For we have forsaken thy commandments, confession of sin, which thou hast commanded by thy servants the prophets, saying The land unto which you are you go to possess it is an unclean land, with filthiness of the people of the lands, with their abominations which have filled it from one into another with their uncleanness. Now therefore, give not your daughters unto their sons, neither take their daughters unto your sons, nor seek their peace, nor, or their wealth, forever, that you may be strong, and eat the good of the land, and leave it for an inheritance to your children, wherever. I say wow to Ezra. When I saw his response I said wow. We need it in this hour. What some people would call over the top overreacting we need. Verse 13, And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great trespass sin that our God has punished us less than our iniquities deserve and has given us such deliverance as this. Amazing. Should we again break thy commandments and join in affinity with the people of these abominations? You said we should... The word affinity, he's saying, should we marry these people? Break your commandments, your covenant? And, and join in affinity with this people these abominations. Which Wouldest not thou be angry with us till thou hast consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor escaping? It wasn't a race issue. It was a spiritual issue. What you and I have to understand is that the people in the world have a zeal to take your holiness. To be connected with them. To enter into union with them. They're happy with that. Because every time you walk in different. Every time you walk in distinct. It troubles their mind. Right. And so to get rid of that troubling, what we would call conviction, they're going to, they've got a zeal to destroy or take your holiness from you. Because it will make them feel more comfortable if you're like them. Ezra knew the problem with entering into relationships with the people of the land. They would take the holiness of the people of God away. Because they have a zeal to do so. They're after it. They're after my holiness. They're after your holiness. With a zeal. So verse 14. Should we again break thy commandments. And join in affinity with the people of these abominations. Wouldst not Thou be angry with us till Thou hast consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor escaping concerned with the judgment of God? O Lord God of Israel, Thou art righteous, for we remain yet escaped as it is this day. Behold, we are before Thee in our trespasses, for we cannot stand before Thee because of this. The grace of God has been shown them. They haven't been judged. But Ezra knows that if they continue in this sin of apostasy and intermingling and intermarrying with the unbeliever, they stay in that present state, they will be outcast. Unable to stand in the presence of And so we will see, Lord willing, next Wednesday, we will see what is the response. We've already seen a small assembly gather around Ezra, tremble at his word. We will see what the direction is from the Lord. How are they going to fix this? We've got priests, leaders, people in Israel that have married unbelievers. What is the direction going to be? to the believer concerning the unbeliever that they're married to. And how does it apply to us in the New Testament? We will see that next Wednesday. Let's stand and pray. Father God, tonight we stand before you, Lord Jesus, and we are thankful tonight for your blood, for your mercy, for your grace, for the cross. Lord, only by your grace, mercy, only by your blood, the blood of the cross, and by our willingness to repent, confess our sins before you, Are we able to continue to be saved? We thank you tonight for it. I judge myself tonight, Lord, by your word. And I say amen. It is true and it is right. Revive me, O Lord, in the midst of years. Revive us, O Lord, Restore unto us the joy of our salvation. Let us return to our first love. Thank You, Lord, tonight for Your Word. Let it be effective. Let it be effective. Let us tremble at Your Word tonight, Lord. and Not just fill the pages of our Bible with notes and marks. But let us fill our hearts with trembling. at Your Word. And we're thankful tonight for this church, for this people, for their desire to live holy, recognizing this struggle. Lord, let us continue to remain to be holy as we are challenged in this hour to discontinue this path In Jesus name we by your grace will not yield and we give you glory and honor tonight as you give us strength, stability and